party's over. White Queen. It's time for the last act. Black Lodge. The final episode of a television legend. It's the two-hour conclusion of... Red Room. Twin Peaks. Monday. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kozowska, and beside me is the godfather of Twin Peaks. John John Thorne. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Good to talk to you. And Brian, I want to say happy six-year anniversary to our podcast. Oh, my (laughs) Lord. Six years ago this week, we... uh... We, we started this whole thing. So. Oh, my God. Six years? <laughs> it feels and like the, 10. One of the best parts of doing this podcast is we got to meet John Thorne. Yes. <laughs> we got to hang out with him at all these events and stuff. So it's been a great ride, John. I guess you had me on relatively early in the run, right? I mean, it was like yeah. five years ago or yeah. more. Tell um, around the time, time. By, when your book came out. How long has it been? I mean, did you just celebrate the five years of the book? Yes, the book came out five years ago last month. I, amazingly, it still sells copies. So, yeah, we talked before the book came out, so it must be over five years. I remember that day. Ben was so excited. Like, that was like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not and trying Brian to like, who? I didn't know. I don't know. This is all new to me. All in the world, right? I should have thrown him out of the show right away when you... No, <laughs> no, no, no. He's absolutely right. You know, if you didn't wrap the plastic, then you don't know who I am. And, and that's that's most of the world, so... <laughs> But I hope we expose, you know, our podcast and, and like Red Room and now you have your own that we expose other people to your work, which is great. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, and I've said this before, you guys, um, you sort of took on the mantle, I think, of where we, Craig and I left off with uh, Wrapped in Plastic. You guys have done such a fantastic job keeping the spirit and fandom of Twin Peaks alive. Thank you. Hey. And John, you know, it was just recently on Twitter that George Griffith, fucker Ray there, was <laughs> <laughs> saying he was doing a rewatch. And there, right there in the middle is your book. I mean, <laughs> The Essential Wrap in Plastic. And, so it's, and, it, and it looked like it was pretty, I mean, there's a few other books too, but yours looked like it was uh, bent and turned and, used, and probably read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and your book was there too. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that was kind of nice to see. And I don't, you know, I don't know if I ever told this story before. I'll just tell it really, really quick. But um, I met George Griffith back when Twin Peaks premiered. I was lucky enough to go to the premiere in Los Angeles on, I guess it was May 19th, 2017. And uh, I walked into the after party uh, after we'd watched the first two hours that mm-hmm. they showed on screen. And of course, you know, uh, the character Ray is fairly prominent in the, particularly I think the first hour. And I walked in and he was standing there and and I went over to him and he kind of knew who I was. I can't remember exactly how we went, but he he was a big fan of Twin Peaks. He was a, um, a fan of, and he read Wrapped in Plastic back in the day. Mm. And he told me this story about how he was this huge Twin Peaks fan, but he kept it a secret while he was on set, while he was <laughs> shooting. He didn't want anyone to know. He just was keeping it to himself. But that, it, apparently on the last day, I don't want to mangle his story, but this is what I recall. On the last day of shooting, he told everyone, I'm a big fan of Twin Peaks. It's not surprising to see a picture from uh, George Griffith with uh, your book and my book and David Bushman's book and all that. He, he loves Twin Peaks. And uh, how great is that, that a fan of Twin Peaks became part of the story? I think it's That's such so a great... Cool great story you know this week is the 30th anniversary of the last episode of season two and so there's no better time to do community watch what i call episode 29 i didn't think we'd make it to this uh. ben 
I didn't think we'd make it. I mean, I'm impressed. But before we get out to the show, I just want to say, uh, you know, Ben does an amazing job getting all the voice actors. He does a fantastic job editing this beast of a show together for Community Rewatch. Thank you. Great work, Ben. Great work. I mean, the people love it. The second half, we kind of, you know, we had the idea, hey, let's open it up to the community. And I think that generated even more uh, excitement and people were really into it. Um, yeah, and Brian, that was more your idea than mine. So we had, we had a lot of our regular people who was doing it for a while. And I think they get burned out and there's so much going on. And so, I mean, it's a lot to ask them to do scripts for every single show. And so it was, Brian, you were like, we should open up to the whole public. And I, I was actually really nervous about that. It's like, yeah. it's like I'm, I'm putting my faith in a lot of people. And I'm not somebody who wants to be like, you, I demand you get this done. It's like, they want to do it, they can do it. But it's, it was a little, for me, it was a little scary to open it up and have trust. And they, they delivered I and mean, they did an amazing right. job. And they, these group of people, they added to it. I mean, they would do things, they have their own ideas like, oh, I'm going to play an instrument here, or I'm going to you know, add in some of these little effects or, or maybe, you know, just, they just did a lot of great things. And that's a great way, a segue to say, here are the unseen players. Rotoran Egdal Kalb, Noslibar Libmai. I'm Bill Abelson, Black Lodge narrator, accompanied by Namra Atilba, Blythe Horman. Hi there, this is Blythe Horman, and I'll be playing the narrator. This is Chris Matthews, I'm playing Dr. Hayward. Hello, I'm Peter Holland, and I will be playing Cooper. Hi, my name is Aaron Cohen, and I'm going to be playing Dale Cooper. Hi, this is Bob Clear, I'm playing the part of Deputy Hawk. Hi, my name is Maya Atkins, and I'll be playing Annie Blackburn. Hey, this is John Salinas, and on this episode I'm doing some narration. Hi, this is Julia, and I'm playing the narrator. Hey, this is Marcel Fraser, and I'm going to be playing Sheriff Truman, Major Briggs, and Bob. Hi, I'm Joyce Picker, and I am playing a narrator. Hello, I'm Andy Bentley, and I'll be playing a narrator. My name is Detective Andy Brennan, and I'll be playing Andy Bentley on... Oh, wait, that's not right. This is Brian Kazaska, and I'm playing the old man. I'm Ben Durant, and I'm playing the clerk and Leo Johnson. Hi, this is Ken Welsh. And I am playing Wyndham Earl. That last voice, <laughs> Ken Walsh. We've got Ken Walsh here coming back to do Wyndham Earl. Going out with a bang. This That's is pretty, pretty cool. cool. I mean, it's pretty so nice. cool. Man, I, I reached out to Ken. He does a lot of stuff on, on Facebook, like uh, Shakespeare plays, and he'll do skits and things. So he seems like he's game for trying things out. So I said, oh, okay, it wouldn't hurt to ask, would you be willing to, to do this the script for this episode? And he was game. And he said he doesn't remember getting this script. So all he remembers is David wow. Lynch basically giving him lines. Like, you see, Lynch throws out the script and basically says, I'm just going to feed you a couple lines. You repeat it. <laughs> Rainbow <laughs> trout in the back of the truck. Just say that. He is a great guy. He's a great yeah. actor. You see him yeah. playing all kinds of different character parts. Recently, as last year, he was on um, Lodge 49, which was a pretty cool show. And he was great yeah. in that. Played this dastardly villain, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> just a nice guy. And, and he loves Twin Peaks. 
uh, as so many of the actors who were who were part of it do. So it, it's fantastic that you got him, Ben. That what an amazing feat that was. Really cool. You've covered this episode probably so much. I mean, but you know, besides wrapped in plastic, a central wrapped in plastic book, you've really covered this. Looking back now, do the things that you've written about this episode does it still stay true? Yeah, this is such an important episode. I mean, really, episode 29, the last episode of Twin Peaks, directed by David Lynch, and we'll go into some of the history of it, of how, as you just mentioned, um, pretty much Lynch threw away the original script, or big chunks of it, and refashioned it to his his own, I guess, artistic sensibilities. You know, I used to say, way back in the day, when we didn't even think there'd ever be more Twin Peaks, David Lynch was still a well-known figure, um, an artist and a renowned director, and people would comment not only on his you know, major films, but his short films as well. And I, I, I no one would ever talk about episode 29 of, of mm. Twin Peaks. And I used to say this is sort of hidden Lynch short film that's way out at the end of, you know, <laughs> way, way, way out at the end of Twin Peaks. And it is one of his best works. Can't overlook that. It's such a critical piece of work for Twin Peaks. And certainly a, a, a great example of his artistic skill. And I do believe, you know, it is a crucial episode. It informs so much of season three, The Return. Certainly Fire Walk With Me is, is a crucial chapter. You can't ignore it. And it informs so much of season three. But that what happens in that last episode, it was, it was unavoidable. Frost and Lynch both knew they had to address essentially where the series ended and it ends here and what are the implications of you know what happened in this episode you know for a long long time people may not realize this but when the episode first aired and really for for a number of years after, there was an uncertainty about what really happened. Um, mm. And most people back in those days would have said, I, I know this is not a spoiler, everyone has seen it, <laughs> that it ended with um, Cooper being possessed by Bob. And that was the assumption that you know, almost everyone said, like Leland, he was possessed by Bob. We know from Firewalk With Me, which came out you know, essentially a year later, there was some uncertainty then when Annie Blackburn says the good Dale is in the lodge. So mm -hmm. there was this sort of implication that the bad Cooper came out. And so they had divided, but still, it, it, it was still confusing because Bob was there. And then Lynch himself in 97 in the book that everyone should have, Lynch on Lynch, he talks specifically about the ending of the episode. And he says it was not Cooper being possessed. He's very very adamant about it. It is not mm. Cooper being possessed by Bob. It was the bad Cooper. And Bob was, you know, just with him. And that really you know, settled the fact that there were two Coopers and Bob and the bad Cooper were allied. And that is exactly what happens. And you see it in season three in The Return when right. Mr. C is in the prison and he looks in the mirror and Bob sort of morphs into him and he goes, good, you're still with me. For Lynch, that was important. It was not that Bob had possessed Cooper, it was that Bob was in alliance with Cooper's evil half. These are important things to sort of set the groundwork for if we talk about season three. This is the episode that sets up a lot of what happens in season three and that crucial element. Uh, it, it, obviously, they continued it in the return. Woods. Night. Pete Martell's pickup is stopped on the side of the road. Windermerle, behind the wheel, studies a map of the forest. Next to him is Annie Blackburn. Glastonbury Grove. Should be right up that path. Windermerle checks his watch. Plenty of time. He watches Annie come to from the chloroform. Hello, sleepyhead. Windham stares at Annie. 
makes a face. Boo! <laughs> Who? Think of me as cancer or a heinous virus, something you can die from horribly. I am about to cow you for your own mortification. Wyndham Earl. Annie turns away. Earl reaches over, pulls her hand from her pocket. A rosary is in her hand. Oh, man, what a cheater. Sister Mary Holywater crams for finals. Oh. Wyndham grabs the rosary and tosses it out of the window, slides closer to her. Hey, you want to know something? Cooper's birthday is April 19th, 1956. That means his moon is in Aries. Get it? This is lost on Annie. Earl goes into a rage. You don't get it, do you, you pathetic little professional shut-in? On the other hand, I have just spent two weeks in a cabin with a smelly head of cabbage. Wyndham grabs her. Has anyone ever told you you look a lot better than Leo Johnson? Smell better, too. If you're going to kill me, why don't you get it over with? Oh, we have much bigger plans than that, my pretty. Earl reaches below his seat, takes out the Miss Twin Peaks crown and places it on her head. He kisses her passionately. She struggles. Earl laughs. I tell you, doll, if I was ten years younger and could find the heater in this truck, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Having some fun now. Wyndham opens the truck door. Won't you join me for a gamble in the grove? He drags Annie out of the truck and into the woods. Truman's cruiser skids to a stop behind Pete's pickup. Cooper runs to the truck, feels the hood. Still hot. They're close. Truman speaks into his radio. Andy, we found the truck. Get the patrol up here. I want the search centered from where we are now. Truman speaks to Cooper. There's a shortcut to the grove up through here. Cooper checks his watch. Still got time, Coop. To fear the worst often causes the worst. He's going to terrify her, Harry. He did it to me. It's what he did to Carolyn. Face to face with all that's intolerable. All that is evil. He can't terrify anybody with a bullet between his eyes. It's this way. I'm right with you, Harry. Earl and Annie enter the circle of twelve trees. Then Earl circles her, stalking. What are we doing here? A momentary pause in limbo, dear. Please be patient. Pity young Dale will miss all the fun. (laughs) I always felt we were sort of lodge brothers. He'll find you. He'll come for me. Do you see him anywhere? Huh? Huh? Annie seems very calm, closes her eyes, whispers prayers to herself. Prayers? What a revolting development. Earl checks his watch, frustrated. She's not scaring. Truman and Cooper move quickly along a path. Harry, all my skills, intuitions and dreams have led me to the threshold of what is completely unknown. Led me in a direction I never could really see. In spite of Earl's prideful insanity, in spite of my best reasoning, only one truth is clear. Whatever is, is right. I'll take it from here, Harry. Alone. Cover me. This is how it's supposed to be. Truman stops, realises the truth of what he's saying. Go, go! Cooper races ahead, Earl and Annie in the dark grove. You and I have an appointment at the end of the world. Doot, doot! But <laughs> This is where it ends and the fun begins. Get ready for first-class despondency and madness. The bewitching hour looms brightly. <laughs> Annie is frozen, glaring at him. If only young Dale had lived to see it. He's not dead. Oh, Cooper's dead all right. Gone and soon forgotten. 
Good riddance to bad rubbish. Oh, didn't I mention it? I meticulously splattered his brains across the back of the roadhouse just before we left. Poor studious little Dale never saw it coming. Not even time for one of his pithy observations, you see. He was too busy looking after you. Left himself wide open. No, no. Same thing happened the last time when he fell in love with my wife. Wyndham pulls out a knife. I took the boy right to the edge that time. Opened him up like a zipper. Six months to put back all the pieces. Annie starts to cry, terror setting in. Caroline, the unfaithful whore. She died quickly. Much better than she deserved. Don't be so prissy. There's nothing serious in mortality. Renown and grace come afterward. In fact, they come right here. Here in this place. The nectar of life will be drawn. Wyndham moves towards her. Annie screams, terrified. (coughs) Behind her, the doorway to the lodge begins to open, a hole in space. Earl is crazed with joy, a benediction. I tell you, they have not died. Their hands clasp yours and mine. Annie turns and seems to be trying to run away, getting nowhere. A kindly, smiling Mother Superior nun seems to welcome her. Annie moves towards her, sobbing. (laughs) The nun turns into Earl, who grabs her by the wrists and pulls her towards the gaping hole, just as Cooper runs into the grove. Wyndham, not dressed in costume, pulls Annie through the hole. Cooper runs to Earl, grabs his leg, but it slips away and disappears into the hole. Truman rushes into the grove, too late, only to see Cooper disappear into the hole, and it closes up after him. No. God, no. So let's talk a little bit about the original script. The original script was four acts, and it was the last episode. It was the big cliffhanger episode, probably written with hopes that they would be renewed for a third season, and this episode would set up all the cliffhangers, just like you know we had cliffhangers in that first season finale where so many things happened. And also because it was the last episode and, and they didn't have to really you know worry about you know stretching any plot into the next episode this first act as scripted was fast paced it was fast it, there was an urgency to it things were happening it was hitting the ground running um and and there was sort of this race against time element as cooper's trying to you know ca- because of the episode before Wyndham Earl had kidnapped annie blackburn and so when it starts the script cooper is desperate to to get her back and you know he's wasting no time now lynch's version of it is sedate essentially i mean they're they're standing in the sheriff's office they're they're contemplating what's going on so so you know, right from the start lynch changed the tone of it um so yeah this the, again the, the original script was uh had, had a different sensibility to it yeah lynch likes to take his time a lot of times with scenes and just you know there's no rush we kind of enjoy the moment but at the same time he throws out so much that like there was a in the script there's such a chase between uh cooper trying to get to windham and windham has all this dialogue and it's just like when you read on script it's like five minutes just to get to the sycamore trees in in lynch's version they're there and you know cooper just go enters the the red room and it's just like there's no way so it's interesting how the flow goes and some scenes it feels like it's going on and there's way too much reading the script there's too much t- conversations when i think about the tv show and 
things happen so quick. Yeah, you know, particularly the Wyndham Earl character is written differently in the script than the way mm-hmm. Lynch presents him. Earl is almost like this, uh, almost like the Joker in a way from Batman, right? He's like a jester. Yeah. He's got yeah. lots of one-liners and jokes and he's kind of demented and he's got all kinds of things that he says that's kind of taunting Annie and making you know fun and gleefully making fun of her predicament and her pain. But Lynch had wants none of that. <laughs> he he turns and you think he might, you'd think he might, because you, you look at a character like Frank Booth from Blue Velvet, who was, you know, just, just pure evil, but he said all kinds of crazy things. Yeah. He kind of had a demented element to him, but that's not the case with Lynch's Wyndham Earl. Well, he's just got fewer lines, and he's more focused, and he's more intent on what he's going to do, mm. and, and that's, uh, I think, Lynch wanted to, you know, focus in on the pure evil behind the facade of, of Wyndham Merle instead of the facade. And at the end of this scene in the script, there's this whole talk about a kindly smiling mother superior nun who's trying to yeah. welcome Annie in. What what do you make of that? I mean, Mark, Mark Frost and, and, and probably Harley Payton who are writing this seem that there's a couple of times throughout the script where there seems to be these, these characters that just show up and then disappear and reappear and yeah, it, it's weird. You know, I, I you know wrote about this a long time ago. It 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 seems like I don't know if this was the intent, but it, at least reading it, you get the sense that maybe when you're on the threshold of the Black Lodge, the Red Room, um, a trap is is sort of laid to get you to voluntarily walk in or to to lure you in, and that is you you see what you want to see. I and mean, this is my take on it. I don't know if this is what they intended, but we see it again later in um, the scripted episode. But so so Anne he sees this kind mother superior nun appear before her and uh, it's sort of welcoming her and and so of course the nun in the script turns into Wyndham Earl so it's obviously been a ruse but I think it's a way of lulling the victim into the Black Lodge and I think that my guess is that was sort of their thought is that you're fooled into being pulled into this terrible place yeah yeah and we got they do something similar on the one what we saw with uh annie and caroline constantly switching between the two annie who's i need me it's me it's me caroline messing with him yeah, messing with him. So they kind of, he kind of does the same thing, but with Dale rather than having other people have those moments, I guess. That scene essentially was in the original script. The idea, the concept that there would be these alternating identities that Cooper sees mm. uh, between Caroline Earl and, and Annie. And uh, Lynch kept that. He didn't. He didn't throw that away. I, that must. He must have found something in that that he liked that idea. And of course, we see that in his other films. The idea of two characters sort of existing in the same space or one identity shared by two different actors. And so I think that appealed to Lynch. So that was a case where Frost and Peyton sort of tapped into that Lynchian sensibility, and he kept it. He used it in the yeah. final episode. And John, you wrote about the doubles and and the the good and the bad, Cooper. Do you want to talk more about that now that, you know, we've seen season three? Again, uh, the original script does have the doppelganger uh, element in it. You know, Cooper sees his doppelganger. So that was not totally Lynch. Well, that, of course, dates back 
to earlier in the season where um, Hawk tells mm -hmm. Cooper, you will see your shadow self yeah. and you can't, you know, you have to face it with perfect courage. If you face it with imperfect courage, it will annihilate your soul. So, so those were, I think, Frost, Peyton elements uh, that Lynch played with in this. I think that the difference is that something happens to Cooper. This is sort of, sort of crucial. Is It's not just that there's this alternate Cooper that exists in the Red Room, which I think Frost and Peyton probably saw this idea that there was, a, there was just alternate Cooper in the Red Room. And Cooper comes in and he sees that. And then there's sort of this um, conflict between them. He changes it in dramatically. And again, as we said, this will this will have consequence all the way through the next season, 25 years later, that Lynch implicitly has Cooper divide. Cooper, you know, essentially falls apart. He, turn, he, he divides mm -hmm. into two beings. And if you look very, very carefully at the way Lynch constructs, especially the final act, which is 18 minutes long, it's, it's uninterrupted by commercials, which was also something that Lynch made sure to do. He mm -hmm. wanted this lengthy final act. He meticulously moves Cooper through the Red Room. And as he does, Cooper is confronted with a number of crises that he doesn't necessarily respond to perfectly or with courage. And at, at the midpoint of the 18 minutes, it's sort of the nine minute mark, there's this division that, that occurs. It's not on screen, but there's enough there to certainly imply it. And Cooper becomes two beings at that point. He becomes the evil Cooper, whom we will later know as Mr. C, and quote unquote the good Cooper. He is not Dougie yet, but he's Cooper without his evil side. Of course, they didn't know they were going to do Dougie. I'm getting, this is really gets complicated. They didn't know they were, what they were going to do. They didn't even know they were going to do anything else. There is a noticeable difference between the Cooper, the good Cooper, the one we would relate to in that back half of the fourth act in the last nine minutes and the way he behaved earlier. He's much calmer. Mm. He's much more, he, he's much more certain. And so, the, yeah. so there's this idea that he is, um, he's lost all of those sort of negative qualities and he has divided. And, and anyway, I think that that's what Lynch wanted to do. And of course he confirms that in the interviews and in Firewalk with me that there's, that Cooper's divided into two beings. And of course, we do eventually see that with uh, the other Cooper, like, waving around, trying to get through the curtain and chasing after him. Yeah, and that, you know, that gets to another important element of it. Again, I think a lot of people, when they first saw it, the implication might have been that the bad Cooper was chasing the good Cooper. Mm. He was trying to catch him. And if you if you look at it a little more closely and you think about, of course, you know, I wrote about this way back when, not knowing what they were gonna do. I mean, actually, I wrote this in an essay. I, written it over 20 years ago cooper you know sees the bad cooper following him and he starts to run at that point and i wrote he now realizes what's at stake only one physical cooper can leave the red room wow. the good cooper begins to run that not out of fear for himself but out of duty to those who are in the real world i mean i was writing that a long time ago with the thought that cooper was like if i let the bad cooper out what kind of chaos will result? Well, we have certainly do see that that's what happened, in, and the bad Cooper does get out. Only one of them can get out, and it and it's, it's not a it's not a chase; it's a race. And mm. the bad Cooper overtakes the good Cooper and gets out, trapping the good Cooper in the red room. 
and I think that that's a subtlety that that was also not apparent uh, on those early first you know first times we watched it we thought oh you know he was trying to catch Dale Cooper he was trying to catch him but you know he wasn't interesting yeah it's cool to see you know you watch that scene again it's like a room filled of all these doppelgangers that are stuck there and then yeah you you actually have an opportunity to allow one of them to escape because the other one the, the actual entity of the good side is there take its place um which is kind of cool when you look back now because you get to see everybody's doppelganger but the only one i miss and i don't know maybe john or ben you probably know more about this than me obviously but i mean what about josie josie should have been in there right technically she passed away she was trapped in the wood I, i to me i would we should have saw a doppelganger of her in there. And there is photos of someone at the body double or her, like, right, uh, photos of her being in there. You know, it's funny you say that. Yes, I think that now we know that in all likelihood, Lynch at least played with the idea that Josie would, an element of Josie would be in the Red Room in that episode. Um, I don't think Joan Chen was available. And so, yes. Um, I think they there are pictures that are out there. I've seen them, and probably they're out all over the internet, where they did have a body double, someone who looked like Joan Chen, who was supposed to be Josie in the Red Room. And I don't know why they didn't do it, other than maybe Lynch just you know didn't think it was it was the resemblance was there. I don't know. I'm, I'm mm. totally speculating, or it just yeah. they ran out of time and they had to cut something, so they cut that. Um, I, I do remember interviewing Frank Silva in 1993. We were talking to him about this episode and he said very matter of factly like we knew and this was the first i'd ever heard of it well you know josie was in the red room too she was there and uh and i and i remember just thinking okay does he know what he's talking about (laughs) because she's not but of course he knew what he was talking about he had been there on the set and they were planning on doing that and he may have forgotten how it aired or he may not have you know maybe not even watched it It, he was part of it he didn't need to see it on tv and to him, Josie was in the red room. It was it was just sort of a, a basic fact, and uh, I, it it totally stymied me when he said that. I didn't understand. It wasn't until much later that you know we pictures leaked and we heard more about this story that Josie was was supposed to be there. Yeah, it just it didn't ultimately didn't work out. I think so. I think Brian, the intent was there. They they thought about it, but it didn't happen. Yeah, it's a shame. You know, it's like a what if. But, yeah. And this would have been Lynch's version because there was nothing in the script to suggest Josie, but it would be something that maybe Lynch thought about adding. Yeah, I bet it was Lynch thinking that. I mean, if you look at the episode, too, the overall, you know, the whole uh, 42 minutes or however long it is, the one that Lynch shoots, he brings back actors that are not in the script, that were never in the script. He brings back Ronette Pulaski. Uh, she comes in to identify, I think, the engine oil. Mm. He brings back Sylvia Horn who appears in the doorway when, you know, Ben is confronting Doc Hayward. Uh, he brings back Sarah Heidi. Palmer. Uh, he, oh, he brings back Heidi. Heidi. I mean, yeah. there's a, like a circle here. This is like, the, the you know, <laughs> he, he, he has an affection for these actors and he probably had an affection to some extent for, you know, Joan Chan. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. their relationship was. He doesn't use her in other projects, but, but there was, it seemed an effort on Lynch's part to bring back, um, forgotten cast members and used them again. He probably was thinking, you know, you know, Josie should be there too. But you know, it wasn't Joan Chen. Glastonbury Grove, night. 
Truman stands alone in a circular grove waiting for what he doesn't know. Andy runs up behind him. Agent Cooper. Agent Cooper. This scares the hell out of Truman. Andy notices the horse costume leaning against a tree. Sheriff, look! Stay away from that, Andy. But Andy is already over there. No, no. There's a note in the horse's mouth. Truman goes cautiously to him. Andy takes out the note and a net drops on top of him. What's the note say? Andy barely able to read in the tangle of the net. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. It doesn't really add anything to <laughs> no. the show, and I think I can see why Lynch would throw it out, because there's more important things to, to cover. Right. Yeah, you get the sense in the script they were just trying to find some things for these actors to do to give them something, and I'm sure Lynch looked at this and said, I'm not doing it. But he, he does give Andy, you know, a, a kind of a significant presence there where he's sitting next to um, Truman and... And I think he's asking Truman, this is in the final version, you know, can I get you some coffee? Can I get you something to eat? He's going through sort of a list of yeah. things. And, uh, and Truman is just sort of numb and just staring straight ahead and saying no. But um, th that's a great scene. I it think is. that is more effective than what would certainly the script would have done. I'm, mm -hmm. I think it was the right choice to, totally. to do away with that particular part. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that final scene, I think Lynch does a great job because not only is it Truman probably feeling helpless, there's nothing he can do, but there's also, I mean, Truman's always kind of the non-believer. Like he never believed in the supernatural stuff that Cooper, I mean, he would go along with Cooper, but he was never a believer in, in you know, supernatural world. So I think for him to actually witness Cooper fading away into uh, the Red Room. You know, that, that's an excellent point. You know, I never really thought of that. It really is, because Cooper has essentially evaporated. You know, he's essentially, you know, disappeared uh, into thin air. And Truman is sitting there just thinking, <laughs> just thinking. And, and, you know, probably, as you say, Ben, he's trying to come to terms with what world am I living in now? And how do I go forward from here? He's really kind of stunned. It's unfortunate. You know, this is the last time we will see uh, Harry Truman in the story. Mm -hmm. we, you know, there's scenes with him in the missing pieces of firewalk with me but of course those scenes take place before the series and so this is in terms of the chronology this is the last harry truman scene where he's just sitting there wondering what happened to cooper and uh you know i mean i know there were circumstances that no one could control about how season three ended up the intent was to have Harry Truman there again. But so it sort of gives it an extra bittersweet sadness to it is this mm. is the last, this is the last time we're mm. ever going to see Truman. The Black Lodge. Agent Cooper, his face filled with wonder. He occupies a dark space, limitless. Annie? No reply. Then a bright light shines and the guardian, cowled in shadow, stands before him. Where am I? A ripping sound, a flash of bright light. Suddenly, Cooper finds himself in a shabby motel office, a raging wind outside, slamming doors, shaking windows. At the reception desk, a clerk, wearing a bizarre orthopedic brace, a tracheotomy plug in his throat. Where am I? The clerk speaks as if to answer Cooper's question. Whom? Is this the Black Launch? Name, please? Suddenly 10 years old. A smallish boy in shorts and shirt. Cooper as boy, Dale Cooper. The desk clerk nods, inscribes. Cooper has returned to his adult self. The change of flashing metamorphosis back and forth. Cooper reorients, reacts. The desk clerk has vanished. An old man stands in his stead, 
Solid, kind in aspect and appearance. Cooper pales. Father? There are fresh towels in every room. Father, listen to me. I need your help. Cable TV, including three adult entertainment channels. Please. And a fruit basket. With our compliments. Father! You will need a key. The old man takes a key from a rack, holds it out to Agent Cooper. Cooper reaches out to receive it. I love you. He touches the key and a blinding flash of light. Then, darkness. Do you have any thoughts about that guardian? Yeah, I mean, it probably is the dweller on the threshold, whatever that is. We do see, I I assumed, uh, because we don't, actually have a visual from the script but that there was it was this hooded figure that uh, major brig had mm. remembered from his visit his disappearance we're not quite sure where briggs went but yeah i just assume that the cooper is is passing a guardian uh in order to you know fully enter the realm of the black lodge you know i don't know if uh, they didn't use it they didn't do it cooper just goes in and he sees jimmy scott singing sycamore trees and Which is a somewhat long scene. There was a lot, lot there. That sycamore tree, which we'd all agree is a great scene. We all love it. We like the song. We like Jimmy yeah. Scott. But those were minutes that Lynch could have used to address some of these other pieces of the script. He just didn't do it. He he wanted that moment of transition between one world and another, and it's it's the Jimmy Scott scene. So we don't get to see this guardian, who whatever it was. I mean, it still blows me away, the sycamore trees, like Cooper actually entering his dream, and you just have this moment where he's kind of like just taking it all in, the flashes and the and the song, and it just it's just powerful. Interesting is that uh, Ronnie Rocket uh, film script, uh, like the early version, actually has a character saying I got an idea man you take me for a walk hmm. clearly Lynch had this stuff that he had written before and decided to turn it into a song which I find really fascinating yeah I think there's things that Lynch um, you know he's got these ideas that don't necessarily get realized in one project and then he uses it again I think you know Blue Velvet's an example he really wanted to use apparently the song song to the siren which is what we hear in Lost Highway hmm. Um, and I couldn't get the rights to it, I think, was the, the story. And so um, had Julie Cruz singing Mysteries of Love and Battlemente composed it. And they used that instead. And then when Lynch gets the Lost Highway, he either has the rights or the money or whatever to, to use Song of the Siren. Mm. Um, and there are other instances we can look back on some things that Lynch just never got a chance one time, but he gets an opportunity again and he uses it. There's two things uh, that like these ideas, these kernels showed up season three, which with uh, Jimmy Scott singing, I mean, we got a performance every episode. That's what it <laughs> reminded me of. Like, he was like, I'm going to have a performance right here. It was sort of like episode eight. We got Nine of Shields in the middle of the episode. And then the craziness happens. It's sort of like that. We get, yeah. we get him singing and then, you know, prepare yourself because it's all going to, it's going to get really crazy now. I rewatched the episode this morning, preparing for today's show. And one thing I noticed, maybe I never noticed it before, and I never said anything. I have no idea. But the table, the table from Fire Walk with Me, is in 
one of the scenes, I believe when when Merle or someone's standing far away, you can see the table in the background. And it's weird because I recognize the table. I'm like, that's the table that's in Firewalk with me. It's weird that it's in the there. Red room, right. It's in the Red Room. It's the, the Micah. For Micah's table? Yeah. It's a weird detail because you barely see it. But then it, it becomes something else later on. And it's just like uh, going back to what you guys are saying. It's these little kernels of ideas and things that didn't pop yet, but they will later. You know? yeah. Great observation. I, I have to go back and look at that. I, I don't remember that, and I'm not surprised that something like that would be there. It's not long after this that, that Lynch is going to make Firewalk with me. So, yeah. you know, not surprising that maybe something he had there, he took it and used it again. We had talked to John Neff a while back, and he had talked about, like, I think when they were doing a Blue Bob record, Lynch had a shoebox, and he would pull out his poems and that he had written some time ago, and he would just start saying, use this as lyrics, and he would just pull out something, and they they would just start singing along to that. And I, I kind of think that, I, I sometimes wonder if that's Lynch's process, that he just writes and has lots of ideas, and when he feels like he pulls those ideas out and uses them somewhere, I don't know. I thought that was kind of neat. Totally believe that. That's, yeah. you know, some of his methodology. And this unseen scene, Brian, you and I did our first time performing in these. <laughs> I get to play Cooper's dad, old man. <laughs> Which is kind of cool that, like, you know, Cooper's dad would have been in here uh, playing a, a clerk of some sort at this hotel or whatever. Um, so I, it's kind of sad we didn't see that. I think that would be kind of interesting to see. Yeah, well, you know, I think what was going on here and when they were scripting this was um, they had the, you know, the autobiography of Dale Cooper book had come out, My Life, My Tapes. They had written it months before and they kind of incorporated elements from that background of Cooper. They were trying to get it into the script, maybe explore Cooper's background. Because I think if you go to that book, you find out a little bit about Cooper's father and his his past. And in this scene, I think Cooper appears as a little boy too, right? He's like a 10-year-old boy, a version of Cooper. So all of that was an effort to tie it to this backstory that they had given us in the autobiography, all of which, when they remove these scenes, uh, you know, is all gone. I mean, there's so much of that Cooper backstory, which really never, ever shows up again. I'm not, I know Frost says he went and he looked at the books when he was writing his book. I'm not sure, you know, much of that book, the biography ended up in the new Twin Peaks that we saw. I think that was their intent in this episode and planting seeds about Cooper's past that they would explore in a third season. Yeah. And I think Cooper had a brother they were going to bring in and all mm-hmm. of that I'm sure would have been brought, you know, into the storyline in, you know, ABC's third season of Twin Peaks in the fall <laughs> of 1991, an alternate reality. Right. <laughs> ben, who did you play? Who was your character? I played the clerk. So I had like two lines. I think I had something like <laughs> <laughs> your home, basically your home, which reminds me, I think, in, I don't know if it's actually in Firewalk with me or if it's in the missing pieces where the little man talks about being home. This clerk says your home now, but I mean, he just says home. And then I think hmm. one other thing that, um, name please. <laughs> That's it. So I mean, but then I will play one more character because I have just so few lines. I get to play one more. I get to play Leo. Oh, nice. Earl's cabin, night. Leo the prisoner sits there with the string holding the bag of spiders. He tries to yell for help, and the string begins to slide through his teeth. 
He chops down harder on it. He tries something else. He slides the chair out from under him. It falls away, but he has no more room, has gained nothing. He is left in a squat with no support. Woods, day. Major Briggs leads Deputy Hawk through the woods. I remember sunlight pouring through tall trees. A common sight in these woods, Major. Hawk looks for tracks, finds none. I can smell it. What? The drug Windermerle gave me has apparently heightened my sense data. Shapes, colors, and smells. I am bombarded, and yet, it's as if my brain were better able to interpret and define reality. Major Briggs pauses to consider. Big grin. Wow. You might want to have Doc run some more tests when we get back. No, no, I'm fine. I imagine this must have been what the 60s were like. Follow me. Briggs now trots through the pines, a man on a mission. His brain filled with bright new information. Hawk follows. My god, the flowers. Can you hear them? No. The wind passing through their petals has a distinctive quality quite different from the pine boughs above us. Look, there we are. This way. Earl's Cabin Day. Leo furiously works at the string in his mouth, trying to increase his grip on the lifeline. His hands tug at the shackles, remain bound. Leo looks at the string with crossed eyes, sees that his saliva is causing it to weaken and fray. Leo emits a little humming moan. Suddenly, footsteps outside the cabin. Hawk and Major Briggs charging forward. Leo reacts, hopeful. The door bursts open. Hawk enters first, gun in hand. Briggs follows. Leo can't help it. He sighs, smiles. Hi. Oh, no. Leo realizes his fatal mistake. Outside the cabin, sounds of Leo screaming. Hawk and Briggs rushing to the rescue and gunshots can be heard, followed by more screaming. You know, this was another one of the cliffhangers that they were going to, they were going to try to give us. They were to cut to the outside of the cabin and uh, we weren't going to know what the fate of these characters were that were in the cabin. But yes, it was Hawk and Major Briggs go and they find Leo in, in what is, again, at least the way it reads, a rather silly scene. You know, Leo mm-hmm. is biting down on this twine that's holding the cage of spiders wherever Wyndham Earl got those way up in Washington State. I guess he went to, you know, uh, the pet store in Twin Peaks was able yeah. to buy some deadly spiders. I mean, this just was, you know, I mean, honestly, some of this stuff got somewhat absurd. Got like, and maybe he brought them with him from where, you know, wherever he came from. Did the spiders really killed him? <laughs> Would they really? <laughs> right. If if Leo had let go of the string and the and the cage had fallen, would would they really have? You know, no. were they just scattered? I mean, again. We should not be thinking too too seriously <laughs> about this. But Lynch threw that away too. I mean, he yeah. he wasn't interested in that. Frost does go back to to tell us the fate of Leo in uh, I think it's the first book that he wrote, and we find out what happened to. I think maybe it's the second. I'm sorry, I can't remember. But um, mm-hmm. we find out that Leo was shot actually, which actually kind of fits somewhat with this mm. scene. It's just uh, who who was it that killed that killed Leo? It wasn't the spiders. Right, yeah, shot, yeah. So. <laughs> and I think Lynch did a better job of you're at the double R and Bobby and Shelly are having a great conversation and Bobby wants to marry her and he's like, uh-huh. yeah, I'm still married to Leo. And then you have like a second of Leo right. still biting down on the, the rope. Right. 
John, you kind of uh, foretold about Dougie. I mean, you kind of saw this whole thing happen. Can you share about that? You got the whole two Coopers. And I actually, I think I was in that camp where I thought for the longest time Cooper was possessed by Bob. It's like, oh, well, Leland was possessed and he saw Bob in the mirror. And so sure enough, we see Cooper and, and Bob in the mirror, so he must be possessed. But you you early on realized that that wasn't the case. Well, thank you for saying that. But I mean, I, you know, Firewalk With Me kind of confirms it. So it's only a year later where uh, mm-hmm. Annie tells Laura, I'm in the lodge with the good Dale. Uh, he cannot leave. She calls him the good Dale. And so right there you get the first major hint that there's a good Cooper and there's a bad Cooper. Look, most people assumed that that was the ending was that Cooper had been possessed by Bob um, because that was the intent of the original scripted ending. I mean, Frost and Peyton were going to have Cooper get possessed by Bob and that was going to be the the cliffhanger that now Bob was in Cooper. And, you know, they planted the seeds for some of that early on. The idea that Bob is looking for another host, Leland is, is dying, and and Bob knows some of Cooper's history. So there was this subtle movement toward this ending. Lynch was not interested in that ending. That was a, That's the first thing. Lynch did not want to have Cooper possessed by Bob. And so he, you know, as I said earlier, he carefully orchestrates this whole sequence where, where Cooper divides into two beings. So there's a good Cooper and there's a bad Cooper. And and it's the bad Cooper who gets out. Who And, and Bob, you know, it's not surprising really. Bob hitches a ride essentially with the bad Cooper and gets out. And our Arguably in part eight of, of Twin Peaks The Return, the idea that Bob is escaping all the time. You know, he's always he's always sort of <laughs> trapped. Mike gets him and then Bob gets out again. He finds another way out. And mm-hmm. so it fits perfectly really with the whole lore of Twin Peaks that Bob is always trying to find a way out. Yeah. And, and 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 that's what Lynch gives us essentially is that Bob escapes with the bad Cooper, not in possession of Cooper. That's a critical thing to remember, and that's certainly what Lynch wanted to say. But you know, I thought about it quite a bit about the idea of, well, what does it mean that there are two Coopers? You know, we don't see much of these characters. We don't see the bad Cooper at all in Firewalk with me. We arguably see mm. what might be the good Cooper. That's how she, he's identified in the Red Room still. And so I don't think Lynch had really thought it through entirely either and Frost hadn't thought it through. But what does it mean to be a good Cooper and a bad Cooper? And my argument at the time was that Cooper was diminished if his evil half was gone, which is kind of a weird thing to say. And I remember Craig really pushed back on me in this. He didn't like that idea. He thought that a purely good Cooper would would be like a superhero and mm. could solve any crime and and because he's per- purely good and my argument was well he can't understand purely good cooper would not be able to understand what motivates someone he would have no inkling of the idea of evil or selfishness or any of those things and that he, my argument was that he would be diminished I, I wrote you know even this and this ending would leave cooper diminished he would still be only half a person he would in all likelihood be incapable of comprehending the human condition of understanding the impulses and emotions and weaknesses that contribute to the full essence of human behavior. Um, and he would be a capped detective. It would be impossible for the good Cooper to comprehend the motives and attitudes of criminals and suspects. Now, you know, Craig and I, we differed on that. But neither one of us foresaw what Frost and Lynch saw as, as a purely good Cooper. And I think it's one of the 
great accomplishments of the new Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks to Return. Uh, I know it's somewhat controversial. A lot of people don't like Dougie. <laughs> I think the Dougie character is, is absolutely brilliant because what Frost and Lynch are saying to us, if you were purely good, and again, this is something Craig and I just missed. If you were purely good, then you would make everyone around you better. You would just, mm. you would almost be impossible for you to get harmed because when anyone would come at you, although Ike the Spike does come at him at one point um, and Cooper you know, stops him, but you know, for the most part, all these forces are sort of arrayed against Dougie and they just they, they become better you know I mean Anthony Sinclair is trying to poison him and then he breaks down crying he's like I'm so sorry because he's been impacted by this goodness this, this radiating goodness and so in in a way the good Cooper when he when he does finally emerge in, in season three he is somewhat what I described in in my writing is that he doesn't understand but it doesn't matter that he doesn't understand because the people around him are impacted by him. And I think that was just such a great way of interpreting the quote unquote good Cooper. It does, you know, bring into good question. Well, who is the Cooper that's in the red room still? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's a Cooper in the red room. Um, it, and so I, I guess I think of that Cooper as sort of um, the Cooper that we know, but he's sort of a victim of being divided. His, his bad self went out and his good self went out. And he's sort of, his mental state is sort of left there in limbo, absolutely incapable of impact either one of them. You know, he can't do anything about his bad self and he can't do anything about his good self. Uh, <laughs> and his good self is, doesn't have any agenda. His good self is just drifting through the world, making everything better. And in some ways, it was a mistake maybe for Cooper to try to reassert himself into that Dougie persona because, you know, he takes Dougie away. <laughs> <laughs> so I was something I was thinking about way back after the show had ended. And, and as I said, Craig and I debated it. What does it mean to divide into two people? What, what is the result of that? And so um, I think the return addresses it. And, and, and that's one of the great, I think, accomplishments of the new Twin Peaks is that it, it didn't look away from that. I love it, John. I love that yeah. you saw that, you know, years and years before you saw what Cooper could be or the good Cooper could be. That's something else. Woods, day. Truman sits on a rock near the circular grove, staring into the now-closed gateway, a mask of determination. Andy approaches circumspectly. Sure you don't want anything to eat? No. Because I could call the diner and they could bring something out. If you're hungry, Andy, call. I don't want anything. I'm not moving from here until we know where they went and when they're coming back. Okay. Andy wanders back down towards the cruiser. Truman continues to stare at the grove. Near the center of the grove, the air seems to shift shape, move, and alter. Truman stands, moves closer. A gleaming white shield appears in the oscillating air, and from behind it a hand holding a silver sword. Truman is mesmerized. He now sees that holding the shield and sword is a tall, dark woman wearing a glittering chain mail. She sees Truman, holds the sword out towards him. Oh, my God. Oh my god. In a loud snap, image of the woman vanishes. A black corridor. A dark, ominous version of the Great Northern. Everything in black and white, including the checkboard floor. Cooper turns a corner and starts towards us, moving cautiously, glancing in all directions. Looking ahead, he sees someone approaching him. He moves closer and realizes it's a version of himself, dressed identically, identical in every detail. 
but, upon closer scrutiny, realizes the figure's face is smooth and blank, his eyes gleaming, lifeless, and black as ebony, no white cornea visible. A door swings open to Cooper's left, another to his right. Looking through the left door, he sees Wyndham Earl far down a corridor, beckoning to him. Looking through the right door, he sees Annie. Annie? The door slams in his face. You know, there's a part where Truman sees this dark woman wearing a glittering chain mail and a white sword. Any thoughts about that, John? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not quite sure where they were going. Obviously, they were introducing a bunch of uh, King Arthur uh, ideas into the storyline. Mm. Glastonbury Grove itself is the King Arthur reference. The way it's written, it certainly brings into mind the idea of King Arthur. And in the King Arthur myth, there's the Lady in the Lake comes out and gives Arthur, returns Excalibur to Arthur, and you know the sword is important. And there's this idea that maybe Truman is is a King Arthur figure and that mm. he will be more than just a knight but he will be a king that's one way of looking at it i'm not sure what frost had in mind we should have asked him that <laughs> i guess all the times we had a chance to well, what were you doing yeah but on the other hand one one way of looking at it is um, as we said about the mother superior nun who showed up in front of of annie and brought her into the black lodge it's arguable that this figure of the woman with the sword could have been something that Truman wanted to see, and it was trying mm. to lure him in to the Black Lodge. Maybe that would have something would have come of that later in a season three that Truman goes back and is pulled into the Black Lodge. Maybe, or maybe he's being um, selected as you know the new guardian of Twin Peaks. You know, he's giving a bigger role. I, I'm really skeptical of that whole plot line. I'm not sure how yeah. they would have. Truman is, as you said earlier, a grounded character. And every man, he is someone we can all kind of relate to. And, you know, how would Truman all of a sudden be dealing with supernatural elements and his role, a supernatural role? I, I, I mean, mm, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, Lynch probably was like, no, we're not doing that. Right, <laughs> and, right. He, and, he, and he completely got rid of it. I always assume when I, when I see these characters popping up, like uh, the nun and this uh, woman with the sh white shield, I kind of think, oh, they must be evil. They must be part of the Black Lodge. But it's quite possible they could be part of the White Lodge. Well, that's a good point, too, because, yeah, it's all, all the concentration's been on the Black Lodge. and, and But you know, there's been a reference to the White Lodge. I think Hawk says there's a yeah. White Lodge. And, 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 and Briggs tells... Cooper about the White Lodge. So it's quite possible that Frost was thinking, hey, we're going to bring the White Lodge in now too. And we're going to have, you know, characters interact with White Lodge elements. And this would have been the beginning of that. That's definitely yeah. possible. And the whole thing about uh, that, that fear and love open doors, maybe... Maybe there's more courage and love in, in Truman. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, no. I think that's a great point. I mean, yeah, Truman could have been – he is a true man, which is what the log lady says in, in season three. You know, the, the people around Hawk are true men. Yeah, he might have been the ultimate champion, right? He was a good person, and yeah. Cooper was flawed. Yeah. That would that would have been an interesting dynamic to explore the idea that that maybe Truman was better suited to dealing with some of these problems than Cooper was. And he was a bookhouse boy, so I mean, there's a, mm -hmm. there is. A, I always thought there was such great mythology that they could have gone through with the the bookhouse boys, and there was a, all this history that they had with the with the mm -hmm. woods and and so many mm -hmm. possibilities. Black corridor. Cooper struggles with the door, can't open it. He hears Wyndham's voice. You're going about this all wrong, Dale. Cooper stops, tries to locate the source of the voice. 
will profit not at all from resisting what there is to experience here. That much I do know. Still an entire life of research and contemplation can't begin to prepare one for the actual experience of being here. Where are we? Speaking for myself, I'm up here. No, up here. Cooper looks up. Earl is floating ten feet off the ground, some distance away. Think of us as astronauts. And when you do, think of us fondly. I could hazard a guess at the physics, but <laughs> why spoil the fun? <laughs> what is this place? What do you think we are, dummy? The Black Lodge. Earl points the shock remote at him and presses the button. A burst of energy hits Cooper, and a loud buzzing sound is heard. Good answer. <laughs> I've always hoped my endless hours of mentoring might contribute to the development of a fertile mind. You were such a dullard, Coopy. Such an earnest, plodding, do-gooding eagle scout. It was all I could do sometimes to keep myself from shredding your internal organs out of general principle. You were too smart for me, Wyndham. Don't prostrate yourself, dear boy. You're a tool. A useful one, granted, but it can't very well be said that we play in the same league now, can it? <laughs> you were always looking for this. That's right. And what were you looking for in your endless perambulations, hmm? Oh, I know all about those three missing years, Tibetan, your pathetic, eager, beaver, globe-trotting quest for enlightenment. <laughs> in that one respect, we aren't so radically different. Perhaps that's why I've tolerated you for as long as I did. Because I knew that one day you would prove useful. Useful for what? Why do you think, silly boy? For fun! He points the remote at him again and presses the button. A blinding flash of light. Cooper comes to, lying on the floor of the red room. He rouses himself, looks around, hearing someone humming. Where am I? A crude, hand-painted sign falls into view. It reads, Pittsburgh, stupid! The sign flies up out of sight. Cooper locates the source of the humming. A woman in a pretty dress stands with her back to him, at a sink in a small kitchen area. Caroline. Oh my god. Caroline? No response. The humming grows louder. Cooper advances on the figure. Caroline? The humming stops. The figure tenses, but doesn't turn. Cooper moves closer. Caroline, it's me. It's Dale. Cooper is right behind the figure. He slowly reaches a hand out, touches the figure tentatively on the shoulder. We hear a low growling, and then the figure turns. It's Annie. As Caroline. Dale. Oh my god. You startled me. I thought it might be Wyndham. Annie embraces Cooper. Thank god you're here. I've missed you so much. I've missed you too. I've been so frightened. I had the most terrible dream. What was it? I saw the face of the man. The face of the man who killed me. Cooper draws back. I know who it is. It's the same man who kidnapped me. The man who gave me the drug. It was Wyndham Dale. It was him all along. Cooper stares at her. What's the matter? Don't you believe me? It's my husband. He's the killer. He's the one I saw. We've got to stop him. You said the face of the man who killed you? Did I? You must be mistaken. I'm alive. Cooper seems close to tears. Annie? Who's Annie? Cooper looks around, speaks to the unseen Wyndham. Leave her alone. Tell me what you want. Just leave her alone. 
A spotlight comes up on Earl in Top Hat and Tails. Big band music. Earl sings. Long ago a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Now heaven knows anything goes. <laughs> the light blacks out. Cooper turns back the other way and sees a shadowy figure lurking behind Annie in a slouch hat, holding a long, thin, gleaming medical instrument. Wyndham. Wyndham looks up from under the hat and winks at him, then directs Cooper's attention to another part of the room where a distraught Earl sits with two police officers describing a crime scene. Oh, I came in the door. There was blood on the kitchen floor. I followed it into the living room. That's where they were lying. Cooper looks over and sees Annie, pale and quite obviously dead, lying in the arms of Cooper's double. I thought they were both dead. I, I knew that because I stabbed them myself. <laughs> Wyndham reveals the medical instrument, blood on its tip. The double opens its black, lifeless eyes and stares at Cooper. Don't do this. Don't hurt her. Tell me what you want. The Black Corridor, Cooper and Earl standing side by side. Oh, oh, that's more like it. Sorry to put you through that, old boy, but I did need to secure your cooperation. Oh, don't worry about your girlfriend. She's alive, of course. What do you want? Actually, I need you to volunteer for something. A mission for a man of singular quality. Tell me. Come along with me. He opens the door, gestures for Cooper to precede him. Cooper does, Earl follows. Throne room, a black and white doctor's office. Plain, non-threatening, two steps lead up to a dentist chair on an elevated rostrum. Some people, I won't name names, they call the place hell. I don't have to tell you what they call the other place. Needless to say, they've got it all backwards. This is the place of power. The others, a revolting mixture of milk-curdling sentimentality and bland acquiescence to the cosmic equivalent of good table manners. See? There's Annie. Wyndham points casually to a medical supply cabinet, where Annie is trapped, alive, behind glass. In case of emergency, break glass. Here's the deal, Dale. Throne room, Wyndham. Wyndham sits on throne. Wyndham King. Wyndham happy. Problem. Wyndham needs to make deposit first. That's how it works. Wyndham can't make deposit all by himself. Wyndham unhappy. What kind of deposit? Here's where the designers show their ingenuity. In return for the best seat in the house, they want something in return. Guess what? Voluntarily offered. No strings attached. By its owner and operator. The soul of a good human being. Naturally something I have in very short supply. That's where you come in. You'll let her go. You'll let her live. Wyndham smiles. <laughs> my Dale! <laughs> it's as if you read my mind. All right. Let's do it. Now, fast. Lovely. Stand over there. A light illuminates a single square of the black and white checkerboard floor. Cooper moves to it. Another light illuminates the dentist chair. A third hits Annie. Everything else goes black. Earl moves to the dentist chair, sits and sings happily. 
Back in the saddle again, out where an Indian's your friend, where everything is green, you can pee right into the stream. Back in the saddle again. A rumbling sound, something approaching. Earl sits back and clasps his hands like an excited child. A door opens. A man in a version of a white dentist smock enters, pushing a covered tray. We can't see his face. He stops next to the chair. Oh, goody! Suddenly clamps spring out of the arms and legs of the chair. Another slithers around Wyndham's neck, while yet another gags him. The dentist uncovers the table, revealing an array of loathsome medical instruments. The dentist picks up a particularly nasty one, a huge syringe, and turns to face them. It's Killer Bob. Earl squirms, screams. We hear Bob's voice, but his lips don't move as he moves towards Cooper. If you know what's good for you, and you do, don't move. Cooper doesn't move. The fool broke the rules. It's really no good if you don't volunteer. Doesn't count if you're coerced. He'll have to be punished, and he will be. Of course, that doesn't mean we have to let you go. This is for extracting... Bob grins and is about to use the syringe on Cooper when a hand reaches in and stops him. They both turn to look and see Laura Palmer. Alarm on Bob's face. A sound of two tremendous energies colliding. White light fills the room. Cooper looks to Annie, who's calling for him silently. Woods, day. Fighting off fatigue, Truman moves around, stretching. Looking back to the grove, he sees someone lying in its center, Truman runs to them. It's Cooper and Annie, both unconscious. Cooper? Cooper! Truman into his walkie-talkie. Andy, get an ambulance up here right now! Cooper! He realizes there's blood on Annie's blouse. Cooper opens his eyes. Coop, you okay? Coop, you okay? Cooper slowly shakes his head and closes his eyes again. A siren in the distance. Great Northern, Cooper's room, night. Wearing pajamas, Cooper lies in bed. Doc Hayward and Truman attend him. Cooper opens his eyes again. There he is. Coop? Where am I? Your room at the Great Northern. Annie's going to be okay. She's in the hospital. Had quite a shock. Everything checks out, though. You're going to be fine. I can't tell you how worried we were. I saw you disappear, God Almighty. I'd like to brush my teeth. Okay, sure, good. Let me help you up. They help him to his feet. Thank you. Cooper walks slowly to the bathroom, closes the door. Cooper looks at the sink at his personal effects. He picks up the toothbrush, squeezes some toothpaste on it, and lifts it to his mouth. He holds it in front of his mouth, looks into the mirror, and smiles brightly. Looking into the mirror, staring back at him, is the face of Bob. Bob the dentist. I don't understand what Mark... Frost and Harley Payton and then we're thinking and I guess the dentists are scary and Bob will be really scary with the syringe and I don't know. That's my guess. So the premise was that Cooper is facing off against Wyndham Earl and then Cooper is trapped in a dentist's chair and Bob appears wearing a dentist's, I guess, a smock and a mask and looking like a you know, a medical person. And I love Mark Frost. And I love Harley Payton. And I think they're great creative people. And um, they were probably under the gun here. And 
they resorted to a cliche and the idea of the dentist inflicting pain and that you're helpless before a dentist. And they went to that imagery, somewhat simplistic. I mean, Bob was more terrifying as Bob. He was wearing this jean jacket and he had this long gray hair and he he just he looked scary. You didn't need to do anything to Bob to make him scarier. I, yeah. I don't know what the thought was here. I presume that they thought, oh, this will be more frightening than Bob, that tr Cooper is trapped and he's helpless. And how do you, how do you convey the idea of being really helpless? Well, a dentist chair, you know, we all know what that's like. We're sitting in a dentist chair, we're laying on our back, we got our mouth open and somebody's working in our mouth and really nothing we can do. <laughs> so, so I think that was, I think that was the thought. I, I think it was a bad thought. I, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, and they probably would admit it too. And, and Lynch certainly was not going to do that. So it, it, it went out the window. That was gone. There was not going to be Bob as a dentist. And But yes, that was going to be the big climax of, of this episode. This was going to be the, the, you know, the, the, the final confrontation with Wyndham Earl and, and Bob and Cooper and Laura Palmer. She also shows up to save the day. That scenario didn't play out the way that it was scripted. I think that's the one thing I wish could have stayed. I think it would have closed the whole show to have Laura Palmer come and stop Bob, or at least we think stop Bob from getting Cooper. I mean, that's another thing. And that I guess even in that script, it, I mean, that's why I mean, it, it seems like he's trying to possess Cooper. He's trying to ask for, for the soul. Right. We're still led to believe that Bob wants Cooper. Yeah, that may have been part of why you know, Lynch was getting rid of that too. The idea that Bob was trying to possess Cooper, and so they they got rid of that. There is a scene where Laura Palmer comes in and saves the day, and there might have been a satisfying element to that to see essentially Laura Palmer come in and essentially defeat Bob in person. You know, we yeah. would have had some satisfaction there. That didn't happen. But, you know, we get something somewhat similar in Firewalk With Me when, yeah. when True. You know, at the end in the train car. And so when Cooper does meet Laura Palmer in the show, she mentions, I'll see you again in 25 years. I'm curious if Lynch actually added that or if that was originally intended in the script. I think it was um, an, an effort on Lynch's part in this episode to tie it to the pillow which is what we mentioned Heidi coming in. And I think the scene is exactly the same. Heidi comes in and, right. and Bobby says, busy jumpstarting the old man. I think it's the same dialogue from the pilot. Yeah. And that Lynch was drawing a circle and he was connecting this last episode to things that happened. And so, so yeah, in the, well, in the European version of the pilot anyway, there's, right. there's a, a whole 25 years later thing. So, you know, finding a neat way to kind of tie it up. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that Frost says in interviews that he and Lynch watched this episode. They went to Lynch's screening room. They were preparing to plan out season three. I mean, can you imagine just being there? <laughs> you know so what that cool. must have been like. And they watched this episode, and Frost says, and I, I, I think he's, I totally believe him that they forgot the idea of 25 years later and they heard it and they're like, wow, it's, it's almost 25 years later. And there's an element of coincidence there. That's pretty amazing really. Cause I always thought it was deliberate. <laughs> I yeah, Frost was looking at the calendar that. and he was like, you know what? We're almost there. We got to get together. Is there anything else you want to share about this episode? I mean, my gosh, I can't believe it's been 30 years. Like I said at the beginning, it's one of the most important episodes. Um, it's, it's, it's a great standalone work. Really it is. I think you could watch it. If you're just a Lynch fan. You could watch it you might not make a lot of sense but the lynch imagery the lynch what lynch does is it's so well 
put together. And this is the fascinating thing. I mean, I'm looking at the dates. Um, I, I don't know if I have them in front of me now, but from the time where, and you know, I've got some call sheets and stuff from the, the time where the, the script was completed and the shooting was to begin on this. Again, I've got somewhere, I don't have it in front of me, but Lynch had a very, very, very short window to revise this and to reimagine, you know, what he wanted to do with this final episode. As far as we know, there is no scripted version of the final episode. It doesn't exist anywhere. He he probably had written it all out, handwritten out kind of what he wanted to do. Sure, he improvised, although there probably was some element of uh, improvisation on set. He was doing like a tightrope walk almost. I mean, he, he was mm. under the gun. He had to get this thing finished. He was he was changing it dramatically from what it was scripted, and yet it holds together so well. And I mean, it, it, it is a stepping stone to season three. So it's a remarkable piece of work. All those other elements swirling around when you think about it. I admire it greatly, and, and I think Lynch does such a fantastic job. It's funny to me, you'll look at Lynch, whenever Lynch is put in a position where he's stuck, you know, or something's changed <laughs> inadvertently, brilliance comes out of it. I mean, he had to tack on this European ending and he, and he comes up with something and, and it's, you know, we all know what it is. It's the dream <laughs> sequence. Um, you know, Mahone drive is a great example. You know, Mahone drive pilot is, is done. It's all open-ended. And then he says, I've got to come up with an ending, <laughs> you know, and he comes up with this new 40 minute epilogue, which re you know, orients everything that came before it. I personally admire that greatly. I find that just to be, just so astounding that Lynch yeah. has a way of taking something and and maybe making it better than what it would have originally ended up being. Yeah. Of course, we look at Fire Walk with me. You think you're gonna have uh, Kyle in the whole movie, and then you can't mm-hmm. get Kyle. And <laughs> how do right. we how do we tell the story now? Well, yeah, it's not just that, but certainly, I mean, I I won't go into it. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I do believe that Lynch re- rethought that whole thing. But also in Firewalk With Me, just briefly, I mean, Firewalk With Me is stuck in a way, uh, the script, by the events that are defined by Twin Geeks season one and season two. And that is that mm-hmm. Laura Palmer is essentially helpless victim. She's going to be killed. And Lynch does not want to do that. He does not want her to be the victim. He wants her to affect her own fate. And so he just kind of radically changes things in the middle, I, I would argue. You know, they, they had a script. If you look at the original script, Laura's the victim. And then at the final version, she's not. And so he is thinking on his feet and makes Firewalk With Me the brilliant work it is because he did that. Yeah, totally. Going back to the whole Bob stuff about the dentist thing, all Lynch had to do is make him laugh. Because that scene still creeps me out. Of him just <laughs> laughing. And when Cooper does it, I mean, that that's all you need. <clears throat> that's all you needed. Simple. simple Bad Cooper simple. comes uh, running up to him and laughs with him. Yeah, yeah that's it. So. I, you don't need no dentist. That was it. <laughs> and they use that scene again in part two of, of The Return. They flashed. Do you remember the evolution of the arm says, do you remember your doppelganger? And they flash back to that scene where they come in, you know, and they're laughing. It's a great scene. So John, I know you've been busy writing. Is there anything you (laughs) can share with us about that? I've been writing for two years, over two years now about the return. And I just finished part 17 a couple weeks ago. I've still got part 18 in front of me. I got a 
ton of notes. I'm going to write part 18. Interspersed in these chapters are essays. I've got essays about Audrey and essays about Diane and essays about Laura Palmer and, and Cooper at talking about Cooper's good and evil selves. And I don't know what's going to come of it yet. I have to go back and look at it uh, and read, read through it and, and maybe prune some pieces out of it. I, so hopefully I will have something that will come out in, in uh, next year. We'll, we'll see. I feel like uh, In Our House Now podcast has been helping you work through some of your thoughts. And great show. You guys have been doing a great job, yeah. Josh, on that podcast. Yeah, Josh Minton and I do the In Our House Now podcast, and uh, it's true. Josh has been so generous to allow me, essentially, to babble uh, you know, about stuff. So I, like, I wrote the Diane essay. It took me two months to write this essay about Diane and try to come to grip with who she is and what her story is in the return and finally felt somewhat comfortable about it. And then we did a whole episode about it. So he let me just sort of speak about Diane. It has helped me organize my thoughts. I wrote an essay about Audrey and we did an, an episode about Audrey. So essentially those those, those podcasts are summaries and encapsulations of those essays that, that hopefully will be in a book someday. I mean, I love the show. You just deal with a theme, a person, a topic, and that's it. I, I, I love that. It's really, it's, it's, it's very different from what else is out there. Thanks. It is really good. It is, it's, it, it's a good way to just um, figure some things out on the fly. I want to thank Ken Walsh, amazing performance. I feel like he brought Wyndham Earl alive again. It is unbelievable to have him act out Earl parts. It was so special. Thank you, Ken, for doing that. The Unseen Players, they are amazing. I yes. mean, we've been, I think we've been doing this for almost four years, the, uh, the community rewatch shows, and to have uh, tw people from 25 Years Later site doing it, and the the pink room people doing the performances and then this new group they've all brought something special to the show and thank you guys so much for for being a part of this yeah and, and i want to say thank you to uh ben for coming up with this idea years ago and saying brian i want to do this thing and i didn't quite understand i thought we we're gonna do like one episode where we you know we act out but then when ben's i remember that day and ben says no all the episodes I think my jaw dropped a little bit, like, what? Um, but, like, I'm so happy you had this idea. We, you, you envisioned it, and we got to do it. And I think that's really cool. And, I, Ben, I mean, great job, like I said before, editing, putting it all together. And I just want to say, of course, this idea comes from John Thorne, Wrapped in Plastic Magazine, which I loved when I was younger, reading those unseen scene issues. And, like, that was, like, to me, the, the best thing ever. Mm. So thank you, John. And I'm so glad you put it in your book. <laughs> it all comes full circle. Yeah, so I mean, it's all circular. Yes, <laughs> it all comes back. And even doing these shows, I was like, I had to reach out to John. It's like, okay, I want to do this, but how do I go about, you know, I part of me was like, oh, we just do scenes and there is no community part. And other than they read stuff and talking with John, you helped me through it and say, hey, we could still do analysis and we could still discuss the episode and have these acted out scenes at the same time. So thank you, John, for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad I could help. Um, you know, just, just real quick, I remember so long ago now, but um, when, when Craig and I got scripts to Twin Peaks, I mean, you, you have no idea. It was like the Ark of the Covenant, you know, like, oh, my God. And, and the script, the final episode, which is what we've been talking about, we were so stunned by the script to the final episode that that was the first one we did in Wrapped in Plastic. We just we can't wait. You guys had good, great patience. We were like, no, we're doing it right now. We started, I think we started with episode 29. We're like, wow. 
it was so dramatically different. So we wrote a big thing about, you know, the differences. And then after that, we went through, uh, you know, we had the scripts and we went through all of them and did what we call the unseen Twin Peaks and, and showed the differences about, uh, you know, where some plot lines were going to go and scenes that were cut and speculated as to why they cut them. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun to do back in the day. I, to this day, I don't remember really anybody doing the analysis that you guys did in Raptor Classic when it came to those scripts. I mean, that was something that you guys had covered that made it so special. Of course, we were very lucky. There really wasn't any competition. <laughs> there, was, there wasn't another Twin Peaks magazine. I yeah. remember Craig say, I've said this before, Craig was the nicest guy, and he was the fairest person in the world. He, mm. he never had a bad thing to say. But every once in a while, I'd say, Craig, you sure we should do this in Wrapped in Plastic? He goes, well, let them buy the other Twin Peaks magazine. <laughs> there was no other Twin Peaks magazine. <laughs> so That's awesome. I was like, okay, you're right. We really had a monopoly on the market there for a while and john can you tell us how people can follow you how can they get your book how can they you know check out all the work you've been doing well the first thing is the podcast you just mentioned that's the most current and new thing which is in our house now which is available on itunes and we are in middle or near the end of our second quote-unquote season uh, i have no idea what we're going to do next but we'll figure it out um and that's been a lot of fun. I have my book, Essential Wrapped in Plastic, five years old now. That's available on Amazon. You can get a hard copy or a Kindle copy. You can follow me on Twitter, which is at Thorn Whip. Look for me there. And then there's the Blue Rose magazine, which is sort of um, in limbo right now, but it is not gone. I talked to Scott the other day. We probably will get an issue out next year. I'm not quite sure. I hope Scott doesn't want to stop it. He wants to do more, but at a regular publication, it's that's probably over. It'll it'll be periodic. You know, come out whenever the time is right. There's still black back issues too of the Blue Rose available. People want to go find those and. And um, so those are the places, those are the things, those are the things I can tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, John, for being on our final four before we end the podcast. So mm. it, it's great. We get to have you on one last time. I'm sure in the future we'll probably have you on uh, a special episode. But for now, this is, it's crazy to think we only have four episodes left. Three episodes um, left. Huh, well, yeah, now we have three. We just, I know, it's crazy. I, time's <laughs> flying by. And, and this then, is really our last guest, really. I mean, John, you're really yes. our last guest. It's, I mean, these last couple are kind of just Brian and myself finishing right. the uh -huh. podcast. So. Yeah, thank you're the you. last one, John. So thank you for being on. Oh, show. my gosh. What an honor. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you guys for everything you've done over the years. It's just great. It's just fantastic. You And you have accomplished so many things. I mean, really, I am still in awe. You would think it's funny, but the fact that you found the guys from Goop and the fact that you found the guy <laughs> who did the access guide and the fact that you found the gentleman who starred in the Georgia coffee commercials with Kyle McLaughlin, I just like, wow, that is great. Ben's <laughs> the man. Great Ben's stuff. the man there. John, you, love you it. led the way. You you gave us the you gave us the direction to heading, and we just kept on going there and and, yeah. and digging some more. So thank you for. Uh, uh, it's good, you, and you know I I I'm, I'm going on a tangent here. Sorry, but you know who else is great? Uh, you know, this is your show, and I'm I'm giving you a. You, you know who else does a really good job at stuff like this? Stephen Miller on his blog. Have you ever yeah, looked at that awesome. blog? And he finds like 
somehow he tracks down a prop and where it came from. Um, I love that and what you guys do when you unearth this stuff that gives us more information about the making of Twin Peaks, mm. behind the scenes. Mm. You know, I, I used to say to Craig, we're documenting the show and we never finished documenting it. And you right. guys have taken it on and documented it further. I love it. I, I mean, I just, that stuff is great. I love it too. Yeah. I, yeah. Steve Miller is something else. I mean, for preparing for the last show, uh, I was going through some of his blog posts and it was the Tim and Tom taxidermy. Yeah. And I don't think I realized the Tim from Tim and Tom were, it was actual Tim Pinkle. That is. Yeah. The, yeah, well, it's because of Stephen Miller. Like he, yeah, he, the things he's found when it comes to locations of where things were shot and stuff is so cool too. Yeah, great stuff. Love it. And before we go, next week on our show, it's going to be a you and me episode. But what is the topic at hand? We're going to maybe try to spend a whole, see if we can stretch a whole show on what if Cooper was more present in season three. Can we make a whole show out of that? I sure. was talking with John today made me think of some things that made me think Cooper was more present. So I, I'll leave it like that. Excellent. I think it's a great topic. So if you have a comment, question, or theory, or you just want to say hi, give us an email at twinpeaksunwrappedgmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter because we have announcements coming up between now and our final episode. Also, please visit 25 Years Later. They've been very kind with us over the years. Uh, please support them as they've supported us Blue Rose Mag, get all your Twin Peaks needs there. I could go through all the books, but just go there and support local writers. And with all that being said, we'll be back in a week. And we'll, we'll see you then. My recollection is that one of the things we did first after deciding to pick it up was actually watch the final episode together. Huh. And, you know, there's that moment where she turns to Cooper in the Red Room and, and says that line. I'll see you. You know, that was certainly the moment when the spark plug ignited. Isn't that yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Is that, was that the first time that you guys actually had sat down together to watch that last episode? Uh, yes. 